Welcome to this Food Thing podcast. This is the place where we talk about our relationship with food, whether it is friend or foe, easy or less so, and how it affects our behavior. Here's today's episode. Welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. I'm delighted to be here today with Carolyn Steele. Carolyn is a leading thinker on food and cities. In 2001, out for drinks with a friend, Carolyn had a Damascene moment when she wondered what it would be like to describe a city through food. Eight years later, Carolyn wrote her first award-winning book, Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives, asking, how do you feed a city? The Ecologist magazine hailed Carolyn a 21st century visionary. Her TED Talk has had more than one million views. Sitopia, How Food Can Save the World, was published in 2020 to critical acclaim. I first heard Carolyn on Radio 4's Today programme, giving Nick Robinson a run for his money. In fact, we're going to play the clip right now. But it is. And I'm so glad you said that because, I mean, actually, I often say that, you know, in a plate of soup in front of you or a bowl of soup is the whole world, you know, and, and actually, you know, what we need in order to understand really all the dilemmas we face at the moment is that, you know, we've got all our value systems upside down. And the fact that we expect food to be cheap is, is to me, the most sort of easily graspable, you know, thing in front of our faces that is just wrong. Food consists of living things that we either nurture or hunt and then kill so we can live. So how can that be cheap? Food is life. So if we don't value food, we don't value life by definition. But you will know there'll be some people listening to that who go, well, hold on, I need someone who's got money would ever argue that. For people in which food and heating Mm -hmm. are their crucial components of what they spend their money on... Food has to be cheap. They no, it doesn't. No, that's... T- i sorry. No, I mean, everyone always says it. It drives me nuts. The problem is that we have people in our society, the fifth or maybe sixth, who knows, after Brexit, probably tenth soon, um, richest country in the world, and we have people who can't afford good food. This is what's wrong. I just love your take-no-prisoners attitude, Carolyn, so a big welcome to this Food Thing podcast. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Was that lovely to hear that clip again? <laughs> um, well, I... <laughs> I've got some in two minds about that clip. I mean, I I was very wound up by the time I actually got on because I'd spent the previous 20 minutes listening to George Eustace kind of droning on, not saying very much and eating into my interview time. And I knew that I only had about two minutes left. And, you know, I'm trying to sort of say that food shapes the world and why it matters. So my subject is quite big. So, um, and then... You know, I mean, I think I think Nick Robinson is wonderful, and I think the Today program is wonderful. But you know, mm-hmm. he he does have this kind of um, technique. I mean, he explained to me afterwards actually of asking deliberately provocative questions to get his guests going, and um, I don't really need a stimulus to get me going. <laughs> So I think it was just kind of like one of those perfect storm moments where I just kind of, you know, I mean, I just cut in on him and and started giving my answers before he'd finished the questions because they were so formulaic. You know, I've heard them so many times before. Um, And that's, you know, again, not to be rude to him. It's just that they're the things that, you know, probably I as a journalist would ask to get somebody going on the subject of food. So, but yeah, as I say, it's a combination of factors that um, made me seem like a bit more of a Rottweiler than I really am. Well, no, you did it with the utmost grace and, um, (laughs) yes, and and dignity, but you were just like, now hang on a minute. I'm going yeah. to get my foot across, which I really respect. And it's a completely different deal mm. on the radio first thing in the morning, isn't it? Oh, well, I mean, I'm normally still in bed, you know, when that was recorded. <laughs> you so, mean I mean, you weren't? Was, okay. 
I wasn't at my best. I mean, I'm, I'm okay. not a morning person, basically. So yeah, that was another factor. Okay. Well, let's dive in. I'm, I'm thrilled, so thrilled to talk to you. And um, I would like to ask you, mm. how would you describe your relationship with food? Would you describe it as a friend or a foe? Um, it's pure love. Is it's, it? It's a it's a love affair. I, wow. I yeah, I, I adore food. I always have. I was lucky enough to be fed very well by my parents, you know, and to and to grow up in an environment where good food was valued. Um, and I I don't know, maybe I've just got sort of overactive taste buds or something. But you know, um, I'm one of those people who just gets very excited when I get hungry because I know it's time to eat again. And eating is always, always just the most extraordinary pleasure. Um, how, how do you stop yourself from eating all the time? Oh, I mean, it's a constant battle because I would. I mean, literally, if you somebody could invent a pill that meant you could just eat nonstop and not get fat, I would be the happiest person in the universe because... I just adore eating. So, I mean, I'm always on the, on the, shall we say, the cuddly side. Um, and I have to go on more or less constant diets in order to fit through doorways. Um, so that's a bit sad. <laughs> but I mean, interestingly, I mean, I actually experimentally tried a drug recently, which is a sort of, um, is the drug equivalent of having a gastric band. Um, Right. And, you know, which I don't know why we're suddenly getting into this. I mean, it's... Sort well, of, no, let's do it. Let's uh, go there. Yeah, yeah. No, I went to see, um, um, uh, oh gosh, I always get this wrong, the, the hormone people. Endocrine, <laughs> um, an endocrinologist. Like, that, uh, yeah, I always want to call them en entomologists, which is people <laughs> who look at insects. <laughs> anyway, I went to see an endocrinologist for actually completely unrelated reasons. And he sort of said... You know, if I said I could give you a, a treatment that would mean you would lose 10 kilos, would you go for it? And I went, yeah, you know, like that. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, so he put me on this stuff, the name of which I've actually forgotten, but I can look up if we need to find out what it was. Okay. And basically this stuff, it just, it messes with your appetite gene and stops you being hungry and actually wanting to eat. And I mean, the, the, I was on this stuff for probably about two months. It's the most miserable two months of my life. Because? And all my friends, well, because I couldn't get the enjoyment out of eating, which is my primary enjoyment in life. And uh. Yeah, I was losing weight, but I was miserable. And, you know, all my friends were looking at me and kind of going, you're not yourself. What's the matter? You know, why aren't you eating? Because I'd sort of pick away, at, you know, a third of a plate full of food and then just stop. Um, and it was absolutely like a night of body experience that I would not want to repeat. And, um, you know, I think it's really, really fascinating. Um, I mean, I've never heard anybody who's been on a gastric band talking about this, but, you know, if your life is built around food, you know, cooking for people, I love cooking, I love having people over. In fact, I've only just stopped washing up now from, you know, a huge post-Easter fest that I cooked yesterday for six friends. And it's, it's my joy in life. So it's a okay. really strong relationship, um, you know, it sounds wonderful. on obsession. Mm. Uh you're the first person to just answer and say, love, it's pure love. I'm just curious, mm. before we move on, this mm. gastric band pill, mm. did it did it reduce your appetite? Did it yeah. take your appetite away? Or did yeah. it do something to your taste buds? Or No, no, no. I could still taste everything. I mean, okay. I didn't really want to drink wine, interestingly. So it, it did affect my taste buds a little bit. Um, okay. And normally I always want to drink wine. <laughs> of course. Who doesn't? Um, quite. And uh, <laughs> no, it, it mostly just took my appetite away. So I'd sort of 
set off on, you know, a cooked breakfast or something. I mean, I went on a walking holiday while I was on this stuff. And yeah. you know, we always start off with a cooked breakfast. And I'd start off very enthusiastically. And then, you know, literally half a rasher of bacon in, I would just stop. It was wow. just the weirdest, weirdest thing. It was like being possessed by, I, you know, mm, someone who doesn't like food. Yeah. For sure. I, I'm also curious as, okay, so you're not feeling hungry. What did you do with your, with the psychology around it, the feelings around it? Because you, well, you said you're possessed. You must've felt like a completely different person. Yeah, I really, I didn't feel like myself. And and all my friends were saying, you're not yourself. So, I mean, okay. it, was, it was very, very fundamental. And I mean, as I say, I just, in the end, even though I was losing weight on this thing, I was not being me. So I wasn't having a life. So I just came off it and, you know, I, I never looked back. I mean, I'm back in what I call half woman, half Labrador mode, which is my, <laughs> which is my default <laughs> mode, which, which I'm very, very happy with, I have to say. I mean, you Fantastic. know, just, yeah, Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, your, your parents, you said you were lucky to be brought up with parents who, who loved food and, mm. um, obviously celebrated food. In mm. what way, In what, what were the food messages when you were younger and, and how did that manifest itself in your life? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, all these questions are huge, of course. I mean, my father was a sort of smorgasbord Jew. So he was, you know, descended from most of Middle and Northern Europe Jewish okay. uh, background. So yeah. Jews obviously have a huge relationship with food. It's all about hospitality, generosity, celebration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, his parents, my grandparents had a hotel oh. in Bournemouth in the UK and oh. I spent all my holidays and every other weekend there. So this is where the learning what good food was came in. I mean, if I tell you just as an example that Dover Soul was on the menu every week and it wasn't just, you know, one of those tragic sort of lemon sole pretendy Dover soles. It was the kind of fish that actually flops off the plate at both wow. ends. Wow. You know, and I mean, this is back in the 60s, you know, I mean, it was, it was not such a sort of luxury, luxury food, but it was... You know, that being normal. <laughs> right, yeah, absolutely. Um, was fairly extreme. Um, my father loved to cook. He was in the army during the war. He was in India. And so he learnt off the... I mean, he was very, very curious about food and cooking. And, you know, he asked the army chefs how to cook curry. So he came back from the war learning, you know, knowing how to cook curry. So right. he would always cook us curry on Saturday nights, which was a very sort of... It was our special fun thing that we did because he was a doctor... And that was back in the days when English people found the smell of garlic disgusting. So uh, being a doctor, he couldn't breathe garlic over his patients. So he could only eat curry at the weekends. So this, weekend. you know, all of these kind of... And my mother, even more complicated, she was from Finland. She was Finnish. Yeah. Um, so another absolutely massive, if you don't stuff your guests so full that they can't move, you haven't been a good hostess sort of thing. <laughs> so the quantities of food that we had, you know, I remember... I remember distinctly, you know, if we cooked a stew or something, it was half a pound of meat per person was the amount wow. that was allowed. You know, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, just, and I remember her making sandwiches and she would sort of cut a slice of bread and then cut a slice of butter and lay it on the bread. And then, and she grew up on a farm in Finland and then okay. cut a slice of cheese and put it on the butter. So it's like a kind of Neapolitan ice cream, <laughs> but in 
but in bread, butter and cheese, you know, um, equal thicknesses throughout. And um, so I was just brought up, you know, loving these these foods that, of course, now are being demonized because theoretically they're destroying the planet or they're not. Mm. Well, I mean, they are because of the way they're farmed. (laughs) Um, The foods themselves are not sort of uh, bad, but the way they're farmed is. So, but, you know, that's how I grew up. So... Did you did you mm. hover at your one of your parents' elbows while they were cooking, or were you in the kitchen of the hotel? Or uh, well, did this you is learn very to cook as interesting. well? Um, yes, no. I mean, what's interesting is that my mother, although she was a very good cook, she actually hated cooking, so right. she wouldn't let me anywhere near the kitchen when she was in it. Um, but I did try. I did want to be there. Okay. Um, but my father did teach me. Interesting. He he taught her as well, actually. So when he was cooking, I would lurk around and. Um, pick a few tips up from him. But also in the hotel, yeah, I mean, the kitchen was was my favourite place to hang out. I was just um, naturally drawn to it. I mean, I was quite young um, because the hotel was sold when I was 13 and I was very shy. So I was, it was slightly skulking around the edges rather than striding in and demanding to be shown how to make bain soufflés, like my sure. brother. Right. He literally did do that. Um, okay. <laughs> um, I was going to say, did he then pursue hmm. a career in cooking? No, he's a Not musician. Not that it's about your brother. He's a musician. Uh, no, 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 I no. Just no. But, it's, it's, but it is very interesting. I mean, we had the identical... We're both very, very interested in food. Um, no, he And he cooks all the time as well and, you know, sort of has all the sort of professional catering equipment and stuff. I mean, more than I do, actually. No, um, but he, he hasn't... I mean, we're both extremely interested in food, I would say, but... Um, I'm the one who writes about it. He just eats it and cooks it. <laughs> okay. So when you did, okay, so did you think of having a career in, in food or hospitality? And then... Well, I think both both my brother and I always felt that we would have loved it if the hotel had stayed on and thought we would have enjoyed running it. So I think, you know, okay. if you grow up in that world... I mean, I, hospitality means a lot to me. I, as I just said, I just had a huge uh, lunch party here yesterday. And, you know, that is literally my happy places, cooking mm. for other people, um, making them happy, you know, right. and I don't mind the work. The work is not work. It's just the pleasure of, of, of making things and, you know, taking care over them. So, um, yeah, I think we both would have been interested in doing that, interestingly. And, and in fact, subsequently, I've had chats with other friends of, you know, um, maybe we should set up a club together or something. So, you know, it, it's, it is somehow in, in my DNA to want to cook for people and look after them, for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you ever, just before we take a quick break, do you mm. ever wrestle with your behaviour around food? Because you said you wanted to eat all the time. <laughs> And I know you. I know you're a happy Labrador, mm. and I just love that. Yeah, yeah. But do you ever yeah. just you're like ah, you know, I've just got to get a bit more of a grip on this, or oh, I've just eaten that, and I wasn't meant to eat until half past one, and it's quarter past one, or do you have no. anything like that? No, no, because you know, I I know where that can lead, um, yeah. and. Food for me is about joy. It's about life. It's about pleasure. It's about actually being alive, you know, as in the act of eating reminds you that you are a kind of a dynamic uh, living being with a connection to the world. And I mean, yes, I mean, as I say, I would love, I would love to be able to eat the amount I eat and not put on weight. But I don't want to become someone who says, oh, I'll just have the one biscuit. You know, I, I, that to me, it's not me, you know, and I actually find people who are very, 
very conscious about what they eat, a little bit sad or a bit, you know, sort of not mm -hmm. sad necessarily, but just mm -hmm. a bit restrained in a way. I don't want to be restrained or controlled. Um, and gonna, I'd rather I'm do it by eating as much as I, you know, I mean, obviously I, I'm, I, there's a certain amount of um, self-restraint uh, in, in the mix, but, um, you know, I'd rather just enjoy myself, eat as I want to, and then go on a diet, which is what I do. <laughs> Yeah, or, you know, I mean, literally I go on, you know, at least a diet a year and I, I can do it. I can lose weight. Even so you don't mind, so mm. okay, even without the gastric pill. This is mm. my thing. You don't mind going on the diet because it's a way to no, get no, back no. to where you want to be. Yeah, yeah. And I quite like being on a diet, oddly, but I, I, I guess I'm drawn to, I mean, oddly, I... I, what I hate, as I say, is the sort of, ooh, I'll just have a little bit. Right, I'm, okay. I'm a sort of all or nothing person. So when I go on a diet, I go on one of those fasting diets, you know. Ah, and yes. I actually find that quite easy because I've just decided, okay, you're just not going to eat at all, Carolyn. And then I can just do it, you know. Whereas this Brilliant. moderation thing, I'm really bad at moderation. I love and I'm that. not saying okay. it's good or bad. It's just that is the way I am. And um, because I get so much pleasure out of food... I don't want to change. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Carolyn Steele. Carolyn, I wanted to pick up on something. You were talking about um, your joy of consuming food and how food is life mm. um, and how that when we eat, it, it reaffirms that we are alive. Mm. And your lack of tolerance for someone says who says, I'll just have half a biscuit. Thank you very much. It's yeah, like, have, I, have the biscuits or not. And I can put myself in, in that camp. And I'm thinking about this kind of, this denial of life mm. um, and how then we produce food and we consume food and how it's, it's just, it's just tits up really, isn't it? Mm. It's all lopsided how we do it. And I just like to kind of ease our way into a conversation around it. Yeah. I mean, by the way, I, I feel I should slightly correct what I said earlier about Do people you? who have not <laughs> yeah, No, that's I mean, me. That's you know, me. So I, you can say it to me. I do I, that. You do what? I just have half a biscuit, thank you. No, no, but I mean, as I said, <laughs> I, I actually admire that. It's just not me. You yeah, know. So, great, great. I mean, I just... Um, and I don't want everyone out there who's clever enough or smart enough to, to actually control their eating to feel I in any way. I mean, I, I think it's amazing if you can do that. I just can't, you know, I yeah. just, um, I'm kind of all in with yeah. food um, and I'm all in with everything, actually. It's just the way I am. So I just wanted to slightly correct that impression okay. I might have given. Moving on, um, I yes. do think as a society, um, we have... Yes, a very, very strange relationship with food on many levels and um, it's kind of where do you want to start? I mean, I think... Well, where, in, what way, where, in what way do we have a strange relationship with food? Well, we don't value it to begin with. So, no. um, you know, there is this uh, historical uh, weirdness of expecting food to be cheap. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this is a sort of result of industrialization. Um, and, you know, in a way, the sort of the whole project of industrialization was to, shall we say, solve the problems of life and obviously the problem of how to eat 
could be said to be the greatest practical problem we, we face on a, on a daily basis. So one can see where it came from. But of course, if you look at, you know, the way we farm now and produce food, it's it's horrific you know, on yeah. so many levels. It's destroying us. It's destroying the planet. We can't go on like that. And, it, you know, actually the food is not cheap. And that's the other really important thing to say. It may be cheap in the supermarket, but the externalities are huge. I mean, they're unaffordably huge, you know, so everything from climate change to lack of, you know, loss of biodiversity, deforestation, uh, soil erosion, you know, water depletion, pollution, you know, it just goes on and on and on. So, so there is no such thing as cheap food. And yet here we are in a society which is predicated on such a thing existing. I mean, we're in a real emperor's no clothes moment, I think, because, you know, for any politician to stand up and say, and, and of course, the war in Ukraine now is just exacerbating yeah, all of this and bringing sure. it to the surface. And of for course, sure. so is Brexit, benighted Brexit, which I almost, yep. you know, it's, it's almost a word I can not bear to pronounce. Yeah, um, but, you know, so many of these things are sort of feeding into a kind of a scenario where, and this is when I jumped down Nick Robinson's throat, you know, when he sort of said, but surely food has to be cheap. So, so yeah. you know, poor people can eat. And that, and, mm. and I go, no, that's literally on its head. Yeah, What yeah. we should be saying is that food has to be good yeah. so that poor people can be healthy, you yeah. know, and, and we can have a planet at the end of the century, you know, yeah. so it's literally turning it the other way up. And, but what it leads to instantly is that we need social reform. You know, Absolutely. because, you know, we, we need to internalize the true cost of food. This is what I'm arguing for. And therefore, we need a society in which everyone can afford to eat. Oh, how'd you get there? Oh, well, maybe certain things like, you know, tax reform or kind of right. reviewing our policies around, uh, you know, social benefits or maybe just, um, yeah, just taxing, taxing the rich a bit more and redistributing our wealth a bit more fairly. Also... Example geographically where and how we produce our food yeah. as in I'm thinking about it where do I well so this is a weird thing so I live in sometimes I live in central London mm. and I can go to a farmer's market a really good farmer's market on a Saturday mm. I'm also surrounded because of the area of London that I live in I'm surrounded by fantastic vegetable shops mm. and organic shops the kind of food that I like to eat yeah. My mum lives in Devon. Yeah. And she goes to the supermarket. I mean, that was a big thing, wasn't it? Put supermarkets yeah. everywhere so people won't buy locally. And she doesn't buy locally. Nearby, my friend has a or actually Shillingford Organics. He has an organic um vegetable farm. Mm. And I've talked quite a lot about food production with him and the issues around that and where, where mm. the food gets stored and the local hubs mm. and how much it costs to go and sell your food at a farmer's market on a Saturday and what they need is a yeah. depot, but there's no funding for it. You know, ha- yeah. as far as a city goes, it's about creating places for food to be stored, places for food mm. to be grown. Well, um, I mean, it's called it's called the wholesale markets, right? You know, we used to have them. In fact, we still got them. We just don't use them. Um, so, I mean, basically, you know, I mean, everything you say is absolutely right. So, if you think about what happens to food, you know, from the place it's grown to the place where it's actually consumed, um, and let's let's think just just about British food. Yeah, you know, historically, what would happen is that you know there'd be 
huge numbers, you know, of of small scale farmers and producers around cities, and they would either bring the food in themselves into the city, or they would pay drovers, you know, mm-hmm. professional drovers or mm-hmm. professional, you know, movers of food, shall yeah. we say, yeah. to they bring would travel in miles, wouldn't they? Hundreds yeah. of miles, yeah. And historically, it would go, yeah. I mean, absolutely. So, for example, you know, a beef from Scotland, you know, it'd be collected in enormous livestock fairs up in Scotland, and then professional drovers would drive it to the city along specialist drovers' roads. Yeah. Um, and then when it got to the city, I mean, historically, what would happen is it would go into the open spaces in the middle of the city, which was the market, uh, where it would be bought and sold. And then you would have small scale food shops around the market. And that's you know how it, how it happened. And basically, therefore, food was moving physically through the city. It was visible to people and also people went to the market. And so, if you like, city dwellers directly encountered farmers, but also people from the countryside, even if they weren't necessarily the farmer, um, as as in drovers, etc. So, Mm. that relationship was the pre-industrial relationship. With industrialization, what happens is that, um, well, many things happen. but railways uh, basically okay. replace all of that human stuff. So the animals can now be slaughtered up in Scotland and come down as dead meat. And, you know, for example, in Smithfield, what you see is that, you know, what used to be a livestock market and was indeed until the mid-19th century becomes a dead meat market. And instead of people seeing cows walking down the road, you know, the, the, uh, there's an underground railway depot built so the meat arrives invisibly and just rises up into the market so it's, it arrives as if by magic and it's the beginning of that sort of as if by magic thing that sort of disconnect yeah and the other thing that happens is that industrialization replaces farmers with tractors um and you get the beginning of you know vast monocultural production mm-hmm. livestock production a lot of it of course you know industrialization is also the moment when the majority of uh, food production for you know for example many european countries moves abroad because it can kind of thing yeah. um so for example you know the american midwest yeah. uh you know which used to be grassland it becomes mm-hmm. a huge grain production area yeah. um and then you know i mean all this business about the corn laws being repealed and all the rest of it that's all about protectionism stopping the foreign grain coming in right. so i mean and the garden city comes out of it i mean this is you know, so much comes out of it but you get the destruction of what you're talking about which is if you like the filigree network of producers and consumers, you know, all kind of mingling together. And, you know, that's that sort of whole sort of uh, sort of network, which goes from the small scale producer to the, the the holding place, which is the wholesale market, which then feeds out into myriad uh, independent shops in the city, which is how it used to be done. So the supermarket completely destroys all of that because the supermarket takes over the whole uh, logistics system and it has they have their own uh, suppliers and they have only two or three and they pay them just above bankruptcy levels, um, you know, which is another issue. Yep, so yep, small yep. scale producers can't afford to supply them. They have all their own logistics, as you know, and then they, 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 they don't go into the wholesale market at all. They go straight to their own shops, of course. So they've got what's known as vertical control of the food supply um, and it completely bypasses the old system. And that is how 95% or something of groceries are delivered in this country. So that's 95%. why you don't have the, something like that. I mean, I wow. don't, don't quote, well, don't quote me on it, but I mean, it's something <laughs> like that. Yeah. It's up there at that kind of level. 
And mm. supermarkets were meant to um, kind of like release everybody, weren't they? It was like this myth, wasn't mm. there, that in, whenever it was, I don't know, 1999 or mm. year 2000, we were going to have this incredible leisure time and everyone was going to have, it was all going to be so easy and the reverse has happened. I'm, um, yeah. Do you think, you see, I'm going to be very naive, do you think that if sudden, let's say 50% of the supermarkets overnight mm. changed into wholesale markets and mm. changed how they paid their suppliers and they didn't mm. just make I, I know that supermarkets will you know take on a brand and then run it into the ground and put it on the bottom shelf and then they'll white label mm. it all those kind of tricks mm. do you think that if that happened it would make a big difference almost immediately I think I mean in order to okay so I mean in order to affect the change that we need we need to move from being a culture and a society that doesn't value food right. to being one that does value food now if you compare us with say Spain I mean mm-hmm. it's very interesting you know when I was writing my first book Hungry City I sort of was researching you know law laws that were in place to protect local food businesses for example mm-hmm. and in Barcelona there were laws that prevented supermarkets from opening up within a thousand meters of a market, a food market. And even if they did, they couldn't sell fresh food at street level. It had to be in the basement. Now that is, if you like, that's anti-free market, but it's protecting the markets. They also invest massively in their markets. So basically, if you're a trader in a Barcelona food market, you pay almost nothing to, for your stall. So, you know, you, you can actually make a living. Whereas in here, you know, the amount that traders have to pay to be at, for example, borough market is so high, they can barely make any money at all. Yeah. But of course, you know, that depends on Spanish people caring about food, or at least people in Barcelona, you know, going to markets and buying the fresh food and knowing what good produce is and, and coming home and cooking it. And of course, you know, so that then it goes to the broader culture. Why don't we cook from scratch in the UK like they do in Spain? But it's because of industrialization. It's because industrialization actually pushed people off the land. It pushed them into cities. It made them dependent on, on industrial food. And, you know, it removed our traditional, our food traditions you know, 200 years ago. And we're still suffering the consequences of that. And it's very interesting globally, if you look at the nations where people don't value food, it's the ones where they have a highly industrialized food system. So it's the UK, the US, Netherlands, mm. and so on. You know, and we you go from this sort of traditional, regional, very important, you know, so I mean, I go to Barcelona a lot. And, um, you know, the people there, they're sort of, ah, oh, the artichoke season, you know, or, yeah. oh, mushrooms, mushrooms, you know, and they're completely right. keyed in still, you know, to, to what's available and when it's coming and it's all local and, you know, and they know the dishes they're going to make. It's it's still there, that kind of traditional culture. Now, what you're talking about is just saying, oh, what if supermarkets started, you know, doing this, that and the other? Well, mm. that's not going to have any effect at all if people don't value it and don't understand what it is. Well, you know, the, so if you were given free reign then, and I said, I don't know, what, how would you how would you wake people up? Would you have a a big advertising campaign? Would you? I mean, I think how would you I do it? You must have thought about it. Education, education, as a Labour prime minister mm. once said. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think you know, I, it, 
very interestingly, it is coming back in this country. You know, people are reawakening to the fact we've got incredible produce here um, and an incredible landscape for growing food of of, of huge variety. So it's not that it's not happening, but it's happening in little pockets, you know, and the vast majority of people are just still, you know, basically going, oh, is it cheaper at Tesco or little, you know, and and as I say, I I don't blame people. I mean, you know, people are not to blame for this. You know, it's the culture they're born into and we are born into, you know, that basically what matters is how cheap food is, not how good it is. As I say, that's for, for historical reasons. So how do we change that? You know, it is absolutely at every level. So I would change it through, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, there is nothing more important um, to teach kids than how to right. eat well how to cook for themselves, how to grow their own food, you know, nutrition. Mm -hmm. I mean, why that is not on, you know, a a massive part of the um, curriculum, I've no idea. Um, I think, you know, if I were prime minister, in fact, I did a food programme, you know, last year when I was allowed to pretend that I was the prime minister and, you know, what would I do? You could do a huge amount through planning. So, for example, around cities, you can make land available for startup farmers, you right. know, so you can. Act, I mean, there's a huge number of people in this country who want to farm, but they can't get on the land because land's so expensive, and everyone wants pony parks rather than actual farms producing food. You know, so I would. There's a huge amount you can do there. You said earlier the food hubs that we used to have in the city. I would absolutely bring those back, but also things like community kitchens where people can come and learn how to cook, or you know community gardens with, you know, people teaching you how to grow your own. Because any of those entry points, you know, if you learn how to grow your own food or you get interested in cooking, I think we saw this under lockdown. You know, I mean, some people got into making their own bread, for example. Anything like that, that switches you on to, oh, wow, you know, food can actually be, it can be exciting and it can be creative and I can make it myself and I can do it with my friends or my family. You know, that becomes the beginning of caring about food. And I think once that light bulb has switched on, it never goes off again. That taking over of public space to grow food, Mm. because Mm. I'm thinking of, um, well, there is a lot of green space in London, not in every area, but compared to most cities. Oh gosh, huge amounts. There is, and I'm just thinking of big vegetable plots in Hyde Park and just on your local estate when you have, I mean, you know, in Cuba they were growing in years ago, vegetables on the roofs, weren't there, babe? Yeah, yeah, there was yeah, no yeah, food yeah. available. Yeah, just I mean, if you, over the if, land. You, if you look at um, aerial photographs of London during the Second World War, it is a farm. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's abs- I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. If you look at, you know, aerial, as I say, aerial photographs sort of aerial. Local parks were turned into allotments. I mean, even, you know, St. Kensington Gardens was, was had allotments in it. Right. right. Um, and, you know, everyone was encouraged to grow their own, as you know. And, you know, a lot of that remains. I mean, actually, there, there, there's a huge waiting list in this country for yeah. allotments. Yeah. I mean, you know, far more people want to grow their own food than actually can. And I absolutely agree with you. I mean, there's so much latent productive space in cities and we should be using it. And But again, you know, growing your own is one thing, but actually giving space for commercial farmers, you know, to grow it for the city, but to do it either in the city or near the city, I think is is where we need to be heading. And um, the, the land is there. It's just, you know, who owns it and who has access to it is the question. And do we value food enough 
you know, for a farm to be able to outcompete a housing development. And of course, we need housing too. So, I mean, being an architect, you know, I mean, I, I think all the time about, you know, what is the optimal way for us to inhabit the land. I mean, in fact, the essay I've literally just finished writing a couple of days ago is called Cytopia, Creating Landscapes for Human and Non-Human Flourishing, you know, which is what I think we need to be doing is working out how do we, you know, live on the land in, in a way that allows both us to flourish, but also nature to flourish. And food sits at the nexus between those two questions. You know, food, food is what connects us to nature more profoundly than anything else. So, you know, it's a really complicated, but really interesting and really important question to ask. How should we, I mean, I think we need land reform, actually. Um, right. I mean, I'm a big fan of um, Henry George. Henry George mm -hmm. was one of Ebenezer Howard's big um, ins inspirations for the Garden City. It's just the idea that basically, if you have sole use of a piece of land, you pay a tax to society, to the community for that. Right, right. And what it does is it means that, you know, the, the relative value of land reduces because, you know, ownership is not pure ownership anymore. It's, it's like leasing the land from the community, basically. Um, and it's actually an old anarchist idea. Um, and it has the effect of making land available. I mean, it's a, it's a really super interesting thing that I probably don't have time to explain in detail right now because um, we only have I, a short amount of time. But it, I, I think we need, people need access to land in order to flourish is my point. I think we're going to go back to that. I'm also, because we're going to have a little break, I'm also going to caveat that it, and say this separation that we have from nature and us and also mm. to add to the whole, um, you know, food is life and how we value food is that we are nature, you know, and somehow we totally we seem to think that we're different and, and separate. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Well, I mean, we are made of the food we've eaten in our lifetime and food comes from the natural world. So we are literally made of natural <laughs> things indeed. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Hi, welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. I'm here with the lovely Carolyn Steele and... Carolyn, can we talk about your book, Sitopia? Mm. It's an unusual title. Mm. Uh, well, I made the word up. So, yeah. Oh, you uh, made no. the word up. Yes. It's, it's Carolynese, but it's, it's from the Greek. Um, and the reason I made this word up, actually, is because I was researching Utopia. Um, okay many, many years ago. And the reason I was researching that was because that was at the tail end of writing Hungry City. Um, and I was looking for a sort of historical precedent of people thinking about the question of how we should inhabit land, uh, which is what utopia does, actually. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, a lot of utopian thinkers are trying to work out what the relationship between the city and the country should be. I mean, that's a very, very strong theme in utopian thinking, as it inevitably would be. Um, and I remember reading that utopia, the you in utopia, um, comes, it's a sort of joke. So it can either come from the Greek word good, which is EU, spelled EU, or the Greek word no, which is OU. So basically, it's utopia is a good place, but no place. Um, in other words, it can't exist. Yeah. And I remember being incredibly depressed by this because I thought, <laughs> well, you know, we desperately need to be thinking in a kind of um, multidisciplinary way about, you know, how to live. And 
you know, if if our tradition, our greatest tradition of doing this sort of basically leads you nowhere, that's that's appalling. But by then, I just, you know, been spending, as I say, about six or seven years researching Hungry City. And I realized that actually we live in a world shaped by food. So I thought, well, maybe we can use food as a substitute for this, you know, as because food connects everything, it shapes everything, you know, it shapes our bodies. I mean, I, I, it's always worth spelling out, it shapes our bodies, our minds, our habits, our homes, our cities, our landscapes, our economy, our politics, our climate, etc, etc. So it really, yeah. really shapes everything. Um, maybe we could use that as a sort of, you know, holistic way of thinking about how we should live. And I just asked some Greek Greek scholar friends of mine, you know, if you were a Greek and you wanted a word meaning food place, what would it be? And they said, well, the Greek word for food is sitos um, and topos, obviously the utopia means good place. So the topos is the same. So actually being correct, it would be sitotopia, but that just sounds like you've got a stammer and no Greek would have been idiotic enough to make a word up like that. So it would be sitopia. So that that's how it came about. And I just, the last chapter in Hungry City is in fact called Zootopia. Um, and that book came out in 2008. And, you know, I just got invited to do things like this, speak about it and so on. And, uh, you know, my thinking was carrying on and I suddenly thought, oh, oh, crikey, you know, I'm going to have to write another book and about what it, what does it mean? If food shapes our world, what does that mean? You know, what can we do with that idea? Um, and so Zootopia the book explores the question of what is a good life through the lens of food. Uh, and that's basically what it does. And is is top of that list placing value on food? Yeah. That's, yeah. The top, that's the number one, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, when you realise that food consists of living things mm. that we kill so that mm -hmm. we can live, therefore... Mm -hmm you know, as you just said, you know, it reminds you that we are part of nature uh, irrevocably. There is no life without, you know, that relationship between us and food uh, and nature through food. Um, then you realise that it's absolutely insane that we should expect it to be cheap. And that in fact, all of our, I would say all of our major issues that we face uh, certainly the ecological ones like climate change and, you know, the, the sixth mass extinction that we appear to have entered uh, due to sort of loss of biodiversity stem from that fact. Stem from the fact that, and as I said earlier, it's a kind of hangover from industrialization. You know, the idea that we're so powerful with our technology that we can just solve the problem of how to live and, you know, solve the problem of feeding ourselves and so on, which I mean, we can actually solve that problem, but ironically, not by just blasting the ground in chemicals and, you know, sort of treating nature as if it comes for free, but rather exactly the opposite, actually working with nature, realizing we're part of it, you know, and actually allowing the huge regenerative power of the natural world to be our teacher and our guide and to live and eat according to its logic and its laws, uh, which is just a, a literally the opposite mindset. Um, and, you know, and this is why I'm incredibly interested that, you know, there's been a massive resurgence in, for example, in, you know, interest in not just organic uh, agriculture, but regenerative agriculture, yeah. which is actually sort of building back what we've taken away through industrialization. And you know, lots of people are are getting onto this uh, now. And I mean, what's exciting about it is that, you know, we can actually do this. Um, we can, you know, feed ourselves far, far better this way, but it does require 
a massive cultural shift it does. in the idea of what a, in the idea of what a good life is and that's really what i'm arguing for is revaluing re- getting another idea of what a good life is using food as our lens and uh, ironically during lockdown i think we saw a lot of it i mean my Sotopia came out the same week that the global pandemic was declared which was a bit of a bummer but right. i mean actually um it turned out not to be i thought it was at the time but it turned People out had time not to read to be it well, yeah. And also, I mean, weirdly, a lot of the things that I was arguing for in the book. So, for example, you know, I was arguing for time, people having more time. So okay. capitalism destroys time. You yeah. know, people having more access to nature, people, you know, sort of thinking about what a good home is and bringing you know, and good work. What does good work look like? And so on and so on. And anyway, I mean, weirdly... You know, when people were sent into lockdown, I mean, okay, lots of people really suffered badly. Um, and key workers, of course, were forced to work in incredibly dangerous circumstances. I'm not saying it was all good at all, but yes. I am saying that, you know, for the, 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 the group of people who were lucky enough to be able to work from home and actually already have a nice house with a garden. Yeah. They were, it was revelatory to them. It was yeah. like, why am I spending four hours a day sitting in a sort of sweaty tin can going to the city to get rich to have a good life yeah. when actually the good life is here? You know, yeah. And it's to do with simple things. It's to do with access to nature, social you know, bonds. So basically being around people you love and you, know, you, you care about and meaningfulness, weirdly. So, I mean, I think a lot of people discovered under lockdown as well you know, the joy of helping your neighbours out or the joy of volunteering for the vaccine programme or just, you know, just being... Yeah, yeah, being yeah. socially engaged. So, you know, it's simple things that make us happy. You know, Do it's you... not... the. Mm. Sorry, go on. No, no, no go I'll on. never stop, so carry on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I am Nick Don't Robinson. interrupt me, I'll just carry on talking I'm Nicola Robinson. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> I know you, you're not. <laughs> Do you I do we, like Nick Robertson, by the way. Mm. I do too. Just, just, despite jumping down his throat. I do too. Mm. Do you think we need to eat less? And do you think we need to eat less meat? And do you think we consume uh, yeah. less? Same question. We consume too much, right? We consume too much crap, which isn't uh, food anyway. Yeah, yeah. We know Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've already admitted to being half woman, half Labrador. So I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm on shaky ground here. But I mean, you know, I don't waste food and I right. eat good food. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I care about where my food comes from. So, you know, I don't, the fact that maybe I, you know, I should eat less. Um, I, I don't think in a scale of things I'm doing harm. I'm just kind of... Um, no, I didn't I'm, mean I'm it like that actually no 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 I did I know you didn't but I mean yeah. it's worth saying that as well um I don't think the problem is that I mean the problem is that a lot of the food that is out there masquerading as food isn't really food it at isn't all. Food. it's kind of it's it's pretend food it's exactly I mean, what we're discovering now and I mean you know all the sort of new discoveries about the microbiome are really essential to mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. we're discovering what we're really discovering is how little we know about human digestion. But what we are discovering is that human digestion does not react well to highly processed food. And the vast majority of what's called the middle aisles in the supermarket, which is all the stuff that you look at and it's just a packet with e-numbers on the back, the highly processed stuff, that is what's doing the damage. And that's why we're getting fat. And it's because it tricks your digestive system. You know, it just bypasses it. And and there's very little fibre in it, which means your gut microbes are starved and guess what? 
what, you know, 70% or something of your entire immune system is housed in your lower gut and yep. all the microbes there, yep. you know, so, your second brain. so we're just, it's, it's the fact that we're just eating this awful food, which, which, because, because that's where all the profits are, of course, you know, is what, is what is promoted and advertised and, you know, branded and thrown at us. So yeah, we absolutely need to dismantle all of that. I mean, and another thing, I mean, Marion Nassau, you know, one of the kind of the prophets of all of this stuff, you sort of, uh, which is an uh, American uh, food academic. She wrote mm-hmm. a book about 20 years now called Food Politics. Mm-hmm. And in that, she pointed out that in America, there were 5,000 calories worth of food available every day for every man, woman, child, and infant which is about twice as much as you can safely eat. So the only way the food, you know, food companies can make a profit in the United States is by force feeding people, you know, so all this buy one, get one free stuff, you know, literally just, I mean, and I don't know whether you've been to America recently, but I mean, you know, I I remember being in Chicago O'Hare airport a few years ago and, ordering a sandwich and, you know, just basically sort of ordering a sandwich to take on the plane. And this guy sort of basically hauled out half a loaf and started lathering <laughs> stuff on it. And I was kind of going, oh my God, I'm not, you know, well, well, I didn't order a family sandwich. I just need one for me. You know, can you just make one for one person? He said, that's, that is for one person. I went, yeah. oh my God, yeah. that's enough to eat for a week. And I said, I, sure. honestly, I don't even want that much food. Can you please just give me half? And he said, no, 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 you have to have all of it or none of it. And I, it was just the weirdest weirdest moment. I just thought, you know what I mean? And, and we know that there are obesogenic societies and America is absolutely the classic one. Um, it was the first, it kind of invented all of this stuff, if you like, this kind of the modernization of the food industry, you know, merely to live there makes you fat. Um, and I know, you know, there's so many stories that you read about sort of, I mean, I, there was one uh, I, I read recently about, you know, Russian uh, mother whose daughter went to live in America, you know, and and literally just came back sort of three times the size. And mm. you know, mm. this is someone who's sort of grown up in a culture, you know, where eating is moderated. I mean, actually, to go back to our earlier conversation, and I, I still feel I, I, I slightly uh, misspoke, as politicians like to say, when I was kind of <laughs> slightly ribbing people who will only take one biscuit. I mean, I, of course, that's what you have to do, because you have to moderate how you eat. But actually, how we used to moderate how we ate was growing up in a traditional food culture, you know, where it wasn't down to individual, you know, self control to not eat too much. It was just, you know, sitting around a table with your family and and sharing a reasonable amount of food is how we all used to eat. Yeah, you know, so also- this business now of being the sole arbiter of what you eat, you know, when you're literally bombarded day and night with kind of, ooh, you know, kind of don't you want a kind of family pack of Kit Kats to kind of eat on your own. You know, it, it, it's not reasonable to expect people to be able to moderate their their food intake in a situation like that. No, because the Kit Kats bypass everything in the in the mouth, and, oh, yeah. and they're not real food. It's despite them being delicious the and thick at yeah. one one end, despite <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. biting that end off first. And I'm also thinking about the biscuit, and we're just gonna we're sadly coming to the end. But the biscuit, um, if it's yeah. made with wholesome. Uh, ingredients, yeah, it will exactly. satiate you. You won't want a exactly. whole plate because you'll be like, no, I've had that's enough. Because right. you're in balance. That's right. 
That's yeah. right. And actually, I mean, going back to where we began, I mean, oddly, you know, I sort of leapt straight into talking about this weird pill I was on, which is just, you know, very aberrational in my <laughs> food experience. But I mean, what, it was very, very interesting, Yeah, you know, because it re- revealed a lot to me about my relationship with food. Well, not that I didn't know what it was like anyway, but, you know, it sort of highlighted uh-huh. it for me. And as you say, one of the reasons we keep eating you know, I mean, I haven't eaten a ready meal for a few years now because I barely ever eat them now because they just don't give me any satisfaction at all. But uh-huh. I remember the last time I did eat one, just just thinking, well, this isn't satisfying me. It's, you know, because I normally cook for myself and I know yeah. where the food came from and I have the pleasure of having invented it and made it. And it's the, something so kind of grounding and comforting and wonderful about food that's made with love. And you know, th- this is why I can't go with these people who are sort of saying, oh, we need to just go to sort of proteins made in factories, you know, because I just don't want to live in that world. And I, I don't think that is the answer. I mean, it may be part of the answer, but I mean, I don't want there to n- be no animals left in fields. And, you know, and, and we need them in regenerative farming systems anyway. But, you know, it's, so in answer to your question about do we need to eat, eat less meat and dairy? Yes, absolutely. But it's, it's don't cut it out altogether. It's eat the good stuff. And, and it's course, the way again, it's farmed, isn't it? As we're saying. It's totally about the way it's farmed and, and, and treat it as a luxury, which is what it is. And that's yes. where we were you know, yeah. 50 years ago. So it's, it, it is in that sense going back to eating a more traditional diet in a more traditional way where meat and dairy always were luxuries. If you were on an on an, on an island, I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> I'm from the West Earn. Country. <laughs> I, I'm from the West Country. I always say I can do that accent because oh, that's where I'm uh-huh. from. Oh. Um, so I'm allowed. Um, mm. What? Any island. Okay, any temperature. Mm. You have a store mm. cupboard, olive oil, salt and pepper, that kind of stuff. Mm. What would you take with you? Five foods that you would take with you. Oh, blimey. Um, I know this is going to be really okay, hard well, for you. Well, weirdly, I've just, my my personal forager, I mean, I jest, a friend of mine who lives in the countryside <laughs> just came up to London the other day and brought me a huge bunch of wild garlic, which is just... Delicious. Absolute food of the gods. I've been yeah. more or less hoovering up wild garlic <laughs> pesto ever since. I discovered the thing to do with it is just make pesto with walnuts and parmesan and good olive oil. And that's ah. it. You don't need to add anything else. Delicious. Don't cook it. Just no. eat it raw. Just, and it's just so divine. So that would be one. Okay, wild garlic. Um, I mean, cheese, obviously. I mean, what if cheese I had to would you take? One che- well, mm, mm. one of the hard ones. Okay. Either Parmesan or cheddar. Good like cheddar. Like a mountain cheese. Okay. 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 Yeah, or a mountain cheese. No, no, no. But I mean, I love a good Gruyere or a Comte. But, um, okay. I, you know, I think I, I am, I'm, you know, I'm a British girl. So I think I have to go British and I'd have to go with a very, very beautiful, mature Montgomery cheddar. Okay. Um, garlic and cheddar, three more. Uh, garlic and cheddar. So I'm doing quite well. You've given me olive oil. I mean, I'm, I hate to say this, I'd have to take wine. I you mean, know, do you, take wine. What yeah, wine yeah, would yeah. You take? I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I would take. I need to nail I mean, it down. On the, on the white side, I love a sort of crisp, minerally, you know, not too sweet. Like a Grunewaldina like, or something. Um, a, absolutely, Grunewaldina or yeah. a, 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 <laughs> some Sauvignon Blancs. I mean, I love New World Sauvignon Blanc. That's kind of my go-to. Okay, um, so you, okay, so you've got white wine And on wine the red there. side, you know, nice, <laughs> rounded, sort of Bordeaux, 
type okay. thing, bit of Cabernet Sauvignon, bit of Merlot, that sort of world. So, so you've done okay. four now. So you have. I am coming to your island. Uh, every what you're day counting for both of those wines as two foods? That's a bit. But I didn't. Sorry. No, Where all right, I'll give, that? I'll give you two more. I'll give you two more. Okay. I mean, um, oh God, this is so hard. I love all food. Bread, obviously. Good right. bread. Okay. The best bread. I mean, you know, sourdough mm-hmm. made with, um, <laughs> you know, actually I just had some the other day that was made with heritage, heritage wheat with Ebba. Delicious. Oh, so delicious. So delicious. And your final um, one? Do you know, weirdly, I might have to go, oh, blimey, this is so hard. Uh, do I need butter with that? <laughs> I think you do. I think you do because you have to have the slab of you have to have the bread, the slab of butter I, that I your mum did. I think I have to go with my mother's memorial sandwich, don't I? Yeah, that's quite <laughs> dairy tastic. <laughs> I need a vegetable. Oh, I've got wild garlic. No, you don't. You've got vegetable. the wild garlic. You can eat it till the cows won't be coming home because there's none on the island. <laughs> Carolyn, thank you so much. Thank I'm you so much. I'm going to be thinking much. about that food question for the rest of the day now. No, do I'm it, sure do. I got that wrong. Do it at your next dinner party. It's such good fun. Thank you so much for coming Chocolate. on this food. Oh my god, didn't see. It's all chaotic. Chocolate. Yeah. Just go to someone else's island who's got chocolate. Thank you so much. I'll have to trade with a nearby (laughs) island. You're right. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. And we will have all your information and your book titles, etc., etc., and a full essay on our Instagram page and all the show notes for the podcast. Thank you, Carolyn. It's been an absolute joy. Did so. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know your favourite bit from this episode. Let me know on Instagram at This Food Thing Podcast or join us again in the next episode.